This is a Full Circle podcast, connecting ideas with the power to act. This podcast is brought to you from our archives at Full Circle Brussels. We're a unique community of thinkers and doers discussing ideas that matter. Today, I'm introducing scientist and entrepreneur Sean Gawley. Sean Gawley is a CTO and co-founder of Quid, a company helping organisations make sense of the world around them so that they can make truly informed decisions. He's a physicist by training and has studied the mathematical patterns of war and terrorism. His experience in mapping the human condition using data, algorithms and other technologies has made him a leading name in the big data community. Sit back and enjoy the talk. Um, the accent's from New Zealand, um, but we've got to, we'll see there's one fan from New Zealand, that's, that's probably more than most. We're a little country, we get left off a lot of maps um, because we're down in the end of the world. Um, Americans never come to visit us because they look at the map and they say, well, that's all the way on the other side of the world and you'd have to travel all the way around the world to get there. But of course, Americans haven't realized the world's a globe and so that would actually improve our tourism a lot more if we actually figured that out. You'll notice I'll say it's big data. Um, I'm not referring to the artist, I'm referring to data. Um, but I pronounce it data, so if that's confusing people, then just we'll, we'll make a note of that as we go along. Look, um, I've. I've spent the day um, talking and hearing myself talk, so you will be the last group to hear myself talk, but I've also covered a whole range of different topics. Um, and I kind of feel like, you know, almost at this point, it's like choose your own adventure stories. Like, you know, someone puts their hand up and I'll go and talk about it for a little bit. Um, but I wonder if, if there's a sense of what people um, have a sort of a desire to hear or if there's something that's been really burning on people's minds, um, then that can maybe help me direct um, what I, what I kind of want to talk about uh, or what you want me to talk about. So in the kind of the spirit of improvisation, if there's anyone who's got a hand up um, who can say, hey, I would love to hear about X, now is your chance. All right, that's, that's good, that's one piece. Any, anything else? So we've got, we got domestic violence and big data. Yeah, I'm interested to know about how big data, big data um, could predict um, the, uh, the next Ebola crisis. Okay, we've got, we got domestic violence and Ebola and big data, and we've got option for one more. Here we here you go. No, we've got two more, we'll take both of them. We'll take them both, we'll take them both. Very ungentlemanly, but anyway, thank you for getting. Uh, I would like to relate, we, we're doing research on tax data. So uh, the European Union has a lot of company data which are available. There's a lot going on in tax optimization. So what is your opinion on big tax, All right, taxes? Tax. All right, we'll yes. link that to Ebola. Okay. That's really boring. Um, no. Should I worry about big data as an individual? Yep, okay, brilliant. Okay, good. Well, I think we've got, we've got, we've got ourselves a little, a little ensemble of topics, and you can judge at the end of it how well I navigated through all of them. Um, I want to start with big data. Um, and, and big data, if you've been kind of following it in the industry, has, has really been this strange trajectory over the last three years. Um, me and uh, myself and um, about six other um, uh, people who had rather esoteric interests in algorithms and data back in 2010 
used to get together um, in San Francisco for what was known as DDG. Um, it was called Data Drinking Group. And it was, it was literally, we, we sort of had annoyed our respective partners to the extent that they couldn't hear anything more about data and algorithms. We had to kind of get together and um, you know, talk about it because no one else really wanted to hear it. But we really kind of got together and there wasn't a name, Big Data. This is 2010. And we started to kind of you know, work on this, think on this. Kind of that group became a little bigger, it became a little larger. All of a sudden, venture capital firms wanted to sponsor our drinking, um, which we said is fantastic. Um, then all of a sudden, people wanted to run conferences based on the, the, the drinking group. And then people started to go in and write articles. People started to get funding for companies. And eventually, it all kind of transpired. And, and we actually ended up with a, with a very own coffee table book. Um, <laughs> with this big colorful book of people of big data, which is sort of weird that we got to this kind of place in the world where big data was now a coffee table book, you know, being bought and sold with glossy photographs. Um, it got so weird that there was a, um, a paper on the archive server in physics um, that um, literally said, uh, is this title, um, I used Twitter to predict X and all I got was this lousy paper, um, which I think highlights the fact that it was really um, so much, there was so much going on with Big Data Predicts X that um, it became a running trope that you could actually publish a kind of a comedy paper um, inside of a physics archive. It got so big in, in Big Data that it, it compelled um, the columnist David Brooks, um, of those that read David Brooks in the New York Times, it compelled him to write a column called, you know, What Big Data Can't Do. Which is, as soon as you've got David Brooks writing a thing about a technology that can't do something, I think you know, you're in this kind of weird sort of stratosphere of, of um, technological hype. Um, but actually, surprisingly, um, for David Brooks, he, he drew some really good points um, and sort of cut through, I think, um, this hype of what big data was. And, and, and he really cut it through and he said there were, you know, there, were, there were four kind of problems with big data. And the first is, it really struggles to capture the nuance of human emotion, human connection. And it can, it can read an email and understand you've got a connection between two people, but it'll really struggle to understand the nuance of love expressed in an email from a father to his son. So that was kind of problem number one. Problem number two was big data held up as a badge of objectivity. It's number. And all you had to do was like, it's data. And everyone's like, well, it's data. But it hid away all of the assumptions within the model, all of the biases within the data that was collected, all of the kind of the messy bits that didn't quite work and you ended up with a number, which you held up as a badge. The third thing, um, and I think it's very important, is that there's an issue with um, a, a leaning on the crutch of correlation at the, expect, at the expense of understanding about causation and that as we end up with more and more data and more and more variables, we can find more and more correlations, but we don't necessarily know why they're happening or if they're even real. And the final point, which I think was the most damning, was that big data was being used to solve trivial problems. It wasn't being used to solve the big problems like accounting. Um, all right, a lot of accounting fans. <laughs> um, the big problems of the world, like a bolt like Ebola, um, actually. But so you sort of have the sense of big data being constructed as a, as a technology
to take the kind of the hypothetical data scientist trying to optimize the color of a breakfast, a children's breakfast cereal package to find the perfect shade of red to kind of use eye tracking software to find the optimum position on the shelf and to use some sort of predictive model to, to optimize the price point to kind of make it the most attractive bit of, of thing that it could buy. Um, all this time optimizing children's breakfast cereal without ever kind of stepping back and saying, well, should we even be selling this in the first place? And what about the effects of diabetes on a population that's eating sugar every morning by the bowlful? Right? Well, they're harder problems to solve. They're harder things to optimize. We don't necessarily have the data available for them. And so big data kind of shirks away from that and solves the problems that can without thinking about whether it should. So we have a powerful technology, no doubt, but there are issues surrounding it. And Anytime you hear kind of big data did X, you should go back to those four points. You know, did it really capture the nuance of the human aspects? You know, was it just holding up a number at the expense of hiding away the bias and the details? Did it just look at correlation when ignoring the theory behind it? And was it actually being used to solve the right problem, or was it only being used to solve a problem that could be solved? So, with that in mind, um, I, think, I think that that gives us a kind of a good basis or a good grounding with how to approach and how to think about data today. I think, you know, the things that jump out for me are some of the most interesting things that it can do and is doing. And one of the things that is going on is real-time monitoring of, of Ebola. And we're seeing that, um, unfortunately, not from um, the World Health Organization or not necessarily from the big governments, but from a few um, research institutions, poorly funded, a few people kind of putting together, but they've actually got real-time predictive models of the likely trajectories um, of Ebola. Now, if you actually look at that stuff, it makes for a pretty sobering reading. Um, and it makes for sobering reading for two things. One is it's an exponential function, and exponential functions basically mean that you're, um, as a human, you're always underestimating things. No matter how good we kind of acknowledge an exponential curve, we always underestimate exactly what an exponential curve means. Um, so, you know, putting that up in our faces and kind of showing that is very good. The second thing what it does is that you make a prediction about where the world's going to be. If nothing changes, that prediction will hold true. And we're pretty good with epidemiological modeling now at predicting with the lack of any change. What is worrying about that situation is that those models aren't changing that we are making active efforts on the ground and those models are still staying in the same place. The second thing that should worry you on that is that there's a chronic underreporting of data that's there, so at best um, we are getting only a sampling of the stuff that's going on. And as a final point, there's a two to three week lag from when people get the data and when it's reported, which means that the models that we have today are about three weeks old when we're looking at them. So we. I think need to be creating these models and creating predictions, not for, the, for the, uh, the gratitude of predicting and being correct, but to hold us accountable to say we predicted it's going to be like this and it hasn't changed. Because everything we do on the ground, if it's going to have any effect, has to take that prediction and that projection down below what it is today. So I would love to see more money and more research and more effort put into that by the big government agencies. I mean, hell, if the WHO isn't doing this, what the hell are they doing, right? But they're not. And why aren't they? And I think there's a big question to be asked is, you know, what, why is it that there's a small research group out of Columbia doing it, or that as a side project with at most one and a half full-time people at Google doing flu trans? 
where is the UN, where is the WHO, where are the big government organisations on this game? And they're not there, and they should be. Um, you know, with, with um, you know, this to kind of flip back and, and, and kind of draw on um, the, the, uh, the domestic violence side of things, um, yeah, there's a bunch of uh, the, the, the team from Quid. I didn't actually know that they'd gone out and done this, but that had been involved in a hackathon um, to uh, take data um, of, of domestic violence um, and use that to, um, to look at um, intervention techniques, um, techniques that, that would change um, domestic violence within certain populations, um, to look for clues of how to kind of bring about change within that. I think that's instructive for a couple of things. Yes, you can do a lot with domestic violence once you start analysing the data, but I think that the, 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 the same is true of almost any problem. The, the issue is not can you do something, but it's can you get people to do it? And I think it, it really highlights the fact, you know, we've got, they'll spend an, an evening at a hackathon and do some work, but you should really have people working on that full time. <laughs> you know, you should have people available to do that, but where's the business model, right? It's a very unclear that there's a business model to do that. You go back to, yeah, I can optimize the color of the breakfast cereal and we can sell more stuff, but can I actually deal with diabetes, right? And so much of the technology that we create in this world it bends the trajectory of that technology towards where there's money to be extracted. Capitalism impacts the technology's path, perhaps more than anything else. And if there's money to be mined by figuring out how to manipulate people to change their consumption, you better believe that data will find a way to do that better. So we're not necessarily limited by the technology as much as we're limited by the business models. Now that's fine, maybe, maybe companies don't solve that. Maybe it's never been their case to solve domestic violence. Maybe there shouldn't be a business in solving domestic violence. But it sure as hell should be someone's problem. But we've seen again that the large governments, the non-capitalistic money that is there has consistently struggled to do this stuff. So how do we change that? And how do we bring that in? As a kind of a, um, I feel like there was um, one over there. What was the point over here? There was, we had Ebola, we had Ebola, we had domestic violence, we had accounting, I'm getting to you. Um, and then being afraid. Well, we've sort of covered afraid, we'll get to that. Um, should we be afraid of big data? Not, um, you know, yeah. Yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah. I think um, probably more than you think you should be. Why? It can do amazing things. Like I say, look, it can, it can, it can make predictions around um, you know, scenarios for, for Ebola and epidemi epidemiological monitoring and change that. It also holds up a pretty stark mirror to where that is and says this is where things are going, right? Which should make you afraid. It's very hard to hide in, in, the, in the world of ignorance when data is available to show you kind of the stark reality of where the world is. Um, it should worry you because most of the world doesn't really understand it. And technologies that can make money that are not understood by populations generally end in a way where the population gets abused in some fashion. And that's definitely the case with where we are with big data. I think big data um, works into a place where we cede a lot of our own selves to the corporations and the information they own about us. We get a little worried that they, they know that you know, I was looking at this kind of information or I was saying these kinds of things. I think that's definitely something we, we need to be concerned about. I think a bigger concern, though, is that they start to become the filter by which you consume information. They start to choose and suggest the friends that you should connect with. They prioritize the information of the friends 
that are in your circle and saying, I think this information is more important to you than that information. They'll prioritize a certain article and a certain view to you over another one. These algorithms that are working in black boxes that are not open to you, taking your data and deciding what's relevant for your world. That's all well and good, but these algorithms are black boxes are judged on the performance output of how much advertising they're selling. So you ultimately got an AI system that is being optimized not on your benefit, but on its own benefit to return capital back to the company that owns it. So I think we really need to be afraid of that if we value a sense of um, our own autonomy to kind of be exposed to the things that are good for us. As a final kind of way to be um, afraid is I think the information that we share in this world, as long as the world is relatively stable, is actually not, is, is relatively harmless. But as we know and we've seen in places like the Ukraine, as soon as that flips, you want to think very carefully about the anti-Putin um, sentiments you shared on Facebook two years ago that are still there, still accessible, still around. And we struggle to think about the tale of how long this data will be stored for. We also struggle to think about the inferences that are yet to be made, that as the algorithms improve, we can ascertain more and more and more about who you are, what you believe, and how we, we decide to use it that we haven't yet invented yet. There will be algorithms that can read data in ways in 10 years' time that will make today's algorithms look very, very pedestrian. And we don't know what they're going to be, but we know that they're going to run on the data that you've got today. So you make a bet, you know, I'll share this data forever in a world where I don't know what people are going to be able to do with that. So I think we want to be really careful of that. I'll leave you with the final kind of point on this, which, which we think about with that, is the stakes are incredibly low in terms of financial. Facebook makes um, $4.50 per user per year. Google makes, um, you know, Google makes about $30. They cost Facebook $1.50 to give you the service. It costs Google $12 to give you the service. So we're trading this kind of control and seeding of information for literally the price of a few cups of coffee. And <laughs> I don't think people quite realize the economics of that trade that are being made within it. And I think as soon as we step back on that, we can actually start to demand a better treatment of the data, a more, um, more autonomy in the information that we're showing and the friends we interact with. We may have to pay for it. It's not going to be hundreds of dollars, but we may have to pay a few dollars. And until we as consumers appreciate that we're being treated like products by these companies, we're not actually going to have um, the autonomy to control um, what comes back to us. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'd kind of leave that on that and with, with the, uh, the caveat, I, I, the, accounting, the, the, the tax and accounting stuff, I think, um, probably the, the, the final piece I'd say on the taxation. The companies that are making money on this stuff are often making money at the expense of um, jobs that, that t exist today that could have once, sorry, that exist today that will no longer exist in the future. As the AI gets smarter, it will remove human work from the system and it will remove white collar jobs from the system. And we will make a lot of money from some of these technology companies at the expense of taking people out of work. That doesn't function as a system because the speed at which that happens means the people that re get replaced don't have time to retrain. So we have to think of a way to make that work and that, you know, one of the things that jumps out on that 
is obviously taxation as, as a blunt instrument, but perhaps one that could be wielded towards um, dealing with this disruption that if we're going to embrace the technology is surely going to come with it. Um, and we know it's going to come there, but I don't think we've really done the thinking around how we want to think about tax to redistribute that on top. So I think that sort of covers those four pieces um, and it probably gives us enough to, to kind of think about um, through discussions and that's probably more than enough um, of my um, meandering journey through big data. So we'll leave it at that and thank you for your time. Thanks for listening to our talk. We'll be back soon with more thought-provoking content. So if you enjoyed this talk, please consider following our podcast on Spotify and other podcast streaming services. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with our events at Full Circle Ideas on Facebook or watch our other talks and interviews on YouTube at Full Circle Brussels. Until next time, 